0: Open Source is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep the world's first podcast going strong. Fifteen years and counting. Find us at patreon.com slash radio And thank you. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Most Americans have no trouble sorting the good guys from the bad in the war for Ukraine. We take comfort that U.S. power stands with the victims of Russia's invasion We're defending universal values of freedom and democracy. The invasion was a crime, and Russia should be punished for it. As simple as that. All the better if our right role in Ukraine puts our own Iraq and Afghan invasions behind us. The puzzle this radio hour is why much of the world sees U.S. power in Ukraine with doubts and some dread as an uncertain step in the gloom of uncharted territory. Mark Weitzman is first up among a variety of non-American voices that we asked to ventilate the commentary on Ukraine and on us. We had never heard of Mark Weitzman until we read his take in The Atlantic a couple of weeks ago. He's a sometime radio producer in France who writes nonfiction and novels. He spoke to us from Paris about his Atlantic piece, which is titled The Reckoning Is Yet to Come. Mark Weitzman, you've added a lot of other meanings to this Ukraine war, and I want you to spell them out. You say it's an event in our media, our culture, the world of ideas. You say the model was the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. Orwell, he didn't just go to watch, he got shot. Hemingway was there, Malraux, all sorts of famous people wrote famous books about it. What is this Ukraine event really about?
1: I wrote the piece because I felt a certain discomfort. In the first weeks of the war, especially when you were in Europe, there was this feeling of overconfidence about it. The notion that Putin can't win because, first of all, his army is in bad shape, but also because he's a dictator and we're the West. After so many doubts about what the West is supposed to be, finally, paradoxically, thanks to Putin's war, there was, and maybe there still is, this feeling that we're rediscovering our heritage as Westerners, our political and idealistic heritage of uh, freedom and democracy. And yeah, sure, to a point, of course I agree, but is it so clear? This atmosphere struck me as A reenactment of the atmosphere of the early 90s, when the Cold War was over, and there suddenly was this feeling that democracy and Western ideals would spread all over the world almost naturally.
0: We called it the end of history.
1: The end of history. But apart from the formula, it was more than that, it was the notion that the dissident in Eastern Europe had kept alive a notion of Western culture and Western ideals based on literature, democracy, a certain image, a certain light, European light, that also resonated in the US through the fight of the of the dissidents and through the fight of what American strategists used to call the West when the Cold War started. And the origin of that could be found in the, the Spanish Civil War, in the resistance against totalitarian the fight against totalitarianism which defines Western liberalism at its best, or which defines the West as it likes to see itself. During the 90s, and certainly after 2000, this ideal sort of vanished in front of an unexpected harshest reality. There was 9-11, there was the lies of the American administration with the Iraq War, there was the feeling that a common reality was suddenly becoming more elusive, So the question is for me, can we reenact as easily as we think we can this Western tradition in front of what's going on? It seems to me that it's a little bit too easy. For instance, one of the things that was was often repeated when the war started was that Odessa was the city of Isaac Babel. Isaac Babel was a very famous writer of Jewish origin and he, he was killed by Stalin and he left behind him fantastic work of literature describing Odessa and the underworld of Odessa, especially. And so in Europe, when the war in Ukraine started, there was this whole thing about the city of Babel and the the renaissance of a European tradition against totalitarianism. But is it so easy? I mean, if you want to know what's going on today in Ukraine, you're not opening books. You go on TikTok and you go on Instagram and you have Ukrainian influencers uh, describing their daily reality. So uh, what I'm saying is that it's a completely different world. Mark, what is it you want us to beware of
0: here? Is it the trivialization or the false accounts of what's really going
1: on? I'm wary of a, you know, after years of a Western world that has doubted of itself, after years of populism, suddenly there is a return of overconfidence as if other problems had stopped to exist in front of a greater threat. So we're all behind Zelensky and we're all we're all believe that the war in Ukraine is a war of the good against evil, of the truth against the lies. As Kostler said, I quote Arthur Kostler in the piece, saying that democracy is not a war of the good against evil or the truth against lies. It's a war of half truth is against absolute lie and absolute evil. We'd better remember that if we want to be stronger than we are because all this rhetoric that Putin can only lose the war is on the assumption that terror never wins. And I think it's not so clear. For instance, the massacres and the terror that the Russian army has deployed in Ukraine that we've seen in the past few days, best-case scenario, Russian authorities let the Russian soldiers act the way they did. Worst-case scenario, they give instructions. Why? Because terror works to a point. I mean, what are we going to do after that? Are we going to negotiate with Putin and with the Russians? Are we going to say, let's sit on a table and see how we can reestablish peace? We're going to install some kind of peace in Ukraine and then things... Business is going to go on as usual, as if nothing had happened. If we do that, we're losing. What's the other way? Uh, No peace at all. Do you see what I'm aiming at? I mean, by deploying terror, Putin asks us to decide what we want to be. Either we submit to terror by negotiating with him one way or another, even if he loses militarily, negotiations with him will mean that he wins politically because he'll receive a pass for the terrorist actions of his army, or we refuse to negotiate with him and then what? We're on an uncharted territory. That's the, the ambiguity of the situation, if you will. Mark, you
0: see this as a culture test, a test of ideas, a stage drama, too. And you remind us that the greatest writers of a century ago, Dostoevsky in Russia, Joseph Conrad from Poland to all of Western Europe, they made classic literature from the terrorism and the turmoil of the late 19th century. And we know those books, Demons by Dostoevsky, The Secret Agent of Conrad. Are you wishing that we had profound, giant artists of literature covering the test here?
1: Well, it's too soon. We've had some. uh, writers, American writers like, uh, for instance, Don DeLillo certainly took uh, the task at heart. You know, after uh, Conrad, after Dostoevsky, certainly Don DeLillo was the one who tried to frame these questions of terror and terrorism in a literary way. I'm quoting Conrad because Conrad says in in The Secret Agent, he has this Russian spy, this Russian attaché saying, only madness is truly terrifying because it can't be bribed. You can't negotiate with madness. Somehow you have to surrender to it. It's a very interesting sentence because it defines terror. Terror is something that breaks language that breaks your very ability to, to discuss, to talk, to even frame things into words. I mean Putin's strategy in Ukraine is very smart in a way, in a very perverse way. Basically, it's a drill he's setting up with the West. What he's saying is, I'm doing what I want to do, what are you going to do about it? Are you going to fight me? You can't, because I can do anything, and you cannot do anything. So in that way, I'm stronger than you are, even if my army is weaker. The terrorists of the 19th century had a word for it. They called it propaganda through action. Not through words, but through action. Terror is a way of communicating something. What I'm communicating by acting like a terrorist is that you're weak because you're not as determined as I am. That's what Putin is doing right now.
0: Mark, let me ask. When the West says, we're back, NATO is back, Europe is back, we get it now, are they bluffing? Are they kidding themselves? Are they really responding or what?
1: That's the question. No one knows. Not even the West does. Are we really back? After the withdrawal of Afghanistan, after the pass Putin received in Syria, where he tested his terror method before to come to Ukraine, we let him do everything he wanted to because, first of all, the Americans didn't want to fight him and because NATO didn't want to fight him and because there was no legal base for it, apparently. So is the West back? You know, after the Cold War, no one knows if the rules of deterrence are working or not. Everybody's looking for the right tests to prove that. So everybody's playing his own game. We're pretty much back to the 50s when no one really knew whether deterrence worked or not. And everybody was looking for the right rules to apply. This is where we are now. So is the West back? That's the question that Putin keeps asking to
0: us. You speak of the Ukraine war as a kind of cultural event. I'm fascinated that it becomes a catch-all for all sorts of cultural questions. Harry Potter, of all people, and J.K. Rowling have been dragged into this fight. Putin says that J.K. Rowling has been cancelled for her views on transgender politics. Manliness is part of the battle here. Oh, yes. Marine Le Pen seems to think that Putin is her kind of real guy. Mm -hmm. How is it that all sorts of irrelevant questions, you could say, get loaded onto the war in Ukraine?
1: Well, the, the manliness thing is very interesting. Most of the supporters of Putin here in France and in Europe were basing their admiration for Putin on the fact that France and Europe and the West are decadent societies and the West is basically a decadent civilization because it's a feminine one. It's been feminized by the sexual revolution, by the gay revolution and so forth. Whereas Putin appears like a real man, the strong man, the man with military means and determination. Interestingly enough, that rhetoric was also used and is also used by the Islamic terrorists of the 90s in Algeria, and in France as well, in 2000s, in Algeria, the rhetoric was that democracy was a system imposed on the Muslims by homosexuals and Jews. In Russia today, ideologues around Putin say that democracy is the system of the sodomites. That's the word that they're using. Yes, in Europe and in France, certainly candidates to the presidential election right now, like Marine Le Pen and Eric Zemmour before her spoke of Putin as a real man, and and certainly they spoke of the French society as decadent and feminized by what they called globalism.
0: Coming up, more links from warfare to stage drama or maybe to HBO's Game of Thrones. This is Open Source. The French writer and critic Mark Weitzman, he sees the U.S. and the world groping in uncharted territory after Ukraine. He says theater and cinema could suggest some directions.
1: You have people like Zelensky, who appears as the charismatic leader of the Ukrainian population, but he's also an actor. I don't think anyone has thought enough about the fact that he acted as a comedian who endorsed the role of the president before he really became one. Everybody admires him for his courage and for the fact that he stayed in Kiev when the war started instead of coming to the U.S., for instance, on political asylums. But had he done that, having been a comedian before the war started and before he became a president, what legitimacy would have he have had? In a way, because he had been an actor, he was forced to stay in Kiev and become the real character that he played in order to be believed, to be legitimate. So there's a strange game between fiction and reality there. Fiction pushed him toward reality and now he's there. Now he's the real character. And there's a sense that Putin pretty much is in the same situation. For decades he played a double game. He played the businessman state-like when he spoke to Western leaders and he's played the czar to the Russian population and to the the Eurasian ideologues around him. And he's endorsing now fully the character of the crazy jar, half Stalin and half Ivan the Terrible. For him too, that's a part that became real. And what makes all these things real is the war, of course. That's a real war. So the reality check, if you will, is for all of us. It's for the West, whether we're back or we're not. And what does it mean? What is the price we're ready to pay to be back? It's a difficult question for the Americans, especially, because without Americans, there is no NATO, and you have an election in November.
0: Mark Weitzman, you mentioned also, and we all remember, the revolution that brought the playwright Václav Havel to the top of a new government, reinventing democracy. And you remind us that Havel brought Frank Zappa and the Rolling Stones into his act. Here was another mix of media and ideas and politics and popular culture at the time.
1: It was the beginning of the 90s. Vaclav Havel was a very serious writer. He had been supported by Beckett while he was in jail. And there was this moment during which we thought that Western high and low culture would mix to frame the new world, the post Cold War world. And that was the culture that would shape the rest of the world and bring democracy and consumerism to everyone.
0: And what happened?
1: Nothing happened.
0: That's what happened.
1: The dissidents disappeared, or Fakhla himself ended up supporting the war in Iraq, and neoliberalism didn't bring the ideals that the West was supposed to bring. Instead, at the end of the decade, we had a huge wave of resentment against the West. I think we underestimated, among other things, the legacy Of the Cold War in terms of anti-Western resentment. The Soviets left a lot of hatred against the West in the Third World especially. This is one of the reasons I think why Putin is actually supported by a lot of countries in Africa in the Middle East certainly to a point in Asia where at least he's not condemned. Explain that. Well it's very hard to explain but certainly in the Middle East and in Africa, there is the legacy of the Cold War rhetoric of resentment against Western colonization and Western civilization. This uh, this global wave of populism that we've been witnessing for almost yes. twenty years now is all about destroying whatever is left from Western ideals. We've neglected the legacy of communism in the Third World, in Africa, in the Middle East, and uh, in places like that there was a rhetoric against the West and Western colonization and and more generally against Western ideals and hypocrisy. We preach freedom and we don't respect freedom. We we preach equality and we don't respect equality and so forth. And we preach democracy and we don't necessarily respect it. All what Koster calls the half-truths of the West is good fuel for global populism Populism is saying, look at them, they're weak. They may have high ideals, but they don't live up to them. They're just a bunch of liars, hypocrites, and so forth. We populists, we put in, we don't lie. We do what we say we do, and when when we say we're going to kill you, we're going to kill you. That's basically the nature of the, the rhetoric. So in the 90s, there was the notion that freedom, individual freedom, is too tiring, It's too heavy. We don't want it anymore. We want someone to take care of us. We want a system to take care of us. We suffer too much to be free. Interesting. That's a good ailment for populism. Marine Le Pen, for instance, right now, in the last weeks of the campaigns of the presidential elections in France, bases all her campaign on that, on I'm going to take care of you because you suffer.
0: Interesting. In France, of all places. Yes, yes, absolutely. One of the things that's suspended in all of this talk is the real fear of war. But it's the war that could escalate into complete catastrophe. We're blocking this fear.
1: Yeah, it could escalates to a very unpredictable situation. What makes the, the situation complicated is that there's a target behind the target in this war. The official target of Putin is the Ukraine and Zelensky yes. to a point, but the real target is the West. So, Putin said so himself, that's what's behind it. It's about humiliating the West, in the best case. It's about destroying Europe, certainly. It's about creating a new frame, a new new world, geopolitically speaking. Is
0: there not something absurd in that vision of his? I mean, he's a much diminished country from the Soviet Union. He has one great resource in petroleum. He has, many people would say, a declining economy, even a declining culture.
1: You're right, of course. It sounds absurd at first because Russia is weak on every department. Still, beware of the weak because they have very few things to lose. They're very good candidates for nihilism. And also, Mm. targeting the West is very popular right now, especially when you associate the West with globalism and... Neoliberalism. By targeting the West, he has the silent support of a lot of people in a lot of places. You know, I think Putin doesn't have the power to impose his will over the world, of course, but he does have a power of nuisance and a very strong one. And I guess that you could say that for most of the anti liberal forces in, across the world today, including populist leaders. They don't really have the power to do what they would like to do, but they do have a very strong power of nuisance. A destructive power, that's what they have.
0: Mark, you speak of uncharted territory, being lost in the dark, so to speak. What's your deepest fear, and what's your glimmer of hope?
1: We've entered a shapeless world. During the Cold War, the world was, was shaped by the balance of terror. It was dark, but we knew where we stood. There were rules that were applied to a point. Today, the world pretty much looks like a Shakespeare's play or like a Game of Thrones episode. I'm not sure there are rules at all. And if there are rules, no one seems to know where they are. So everybody's testing the other player's determination and position to see who is strong and who's not and act accordingly after that. And in such an environment... The notion that you can discuss rationally and peacefully is a little bit outdated. Obviously, mm. people do not act rationally at this point. People act according to their passion, not to reason, not anymore.
0: Mark, here's one very strong-minded writer and thinker in France. Speak of your country as a whole. How are they going through this, this period, this mystery? How do they define it?
1: France has been the cradle of populism uh, in history. You know, We practically invented it. And so now it's coming back. And I thought in 20, 2016, before Trump was elected in the U.S., I thought that we would elect the first pro-Russian candidate in France, actually. And it didn't happen, but it may happen this time. We're coming in the last weeks of the presidential elections, and frankly, I mean, it's very suspenseful, to say the least, It's not obvious at all that Macron is going to be re-elected and if he's not, if Marine Le Pen becomes president it's going to change the face of Europe very, very deeply for the worse. Because France is a pivotal state in the European Union right now. Without France, if France goes against the EU the EU is virtually dead. If that happens, then Putin has a free hand all over the continent. That's what is at stake right now. It's very dangerous.
0: Your praise about uncharted territory is getting to me. Suddenly I fear we're all sort of coming out of our caves for the first time and trying to invent a way in which we could all live together.
1: It's quite simple. During the Cold War, there were rules. We knew where we stood, geopolitically speaking, I mean. We knew what the world looked like, especially during the second half of the Cold War. There was the West, there was the East, and there was the former colonies that had won their independence. Those were the three poles of the world. In other words, of course, there was Asia, but Asia was not so important at the time. After the Cold War ended, we thought that there would be a global order, democratic global order inspired by the West, and that everybody would subscribe to that order because it was based on reason and rationality. We thought that Mm. everybody, knowing what its best interest is, would agree to cooperate to a global world based on commerce and economic development. The result of that hope was nine eleven. What we witnessed in the 2000s was the result of irrational passions first examined by Dostoevsky, Conrad, and so forth. People acting in a very destructive way because they think that it's better that way, because they need to redeem their feeling of humiliation, they need to get revenge. This is what we discovered in the early two thousand, that people could act in a way that was not rational because passion took over, because the feeling of humiliation took over, and because they, they were looking for revenge and they were looking for honor and a sense of respect. They didn't feel they had by submitting their life to a world... Framed by statistics and by commerce and consumerism. People want more, it seems. They want to give meaning to their lives. And this meaning has to do with anger and humiliation and honor. This was what drove the Islamists first, and then the populists, and then the Russian now to the path of war. And now we're discovering that everybody wants, everybody's pretty much in that mindset. I mean, basically, we're living in a world where the characters of Dostoevsky have won. Which ones? Raskolnikov, or the characters of the demons. The gangsters. Yeah, the gangsters, yes. Not just the gangsters, but the mad ones. Anger drives the world, not rationality.
0: Did Putin invent out of his own head and heart this uncharted territory, or did the world present it to him?
1: It's a collective creation, I guess. But certainly the West has sent signs that there was no order any longer. Obama's foreign policy wasn't its greatest point, whether in Syria or elsewhere, but especially in Syria. The way the withdrawal of Afghanistan was managed was not great either. I'm not saying that the Americans should have stayed there, but what happened happened, and it was not great. And also the result, the spectacle of seeing the Americans going to Afghanistan to fight the Taliban and leaving 20 years after that to let the Taliban come back to power is a bit stunning. Everybody witnesses, including the bad guys. So people like Putin, they see that and they say, okay, well, there's a lot of rooms to maneuver. I've been going to Syria and nobody stopped me when I bombed the civilians. So why not go on? You know, who's going to stop me now?
0: Mark Weitzman, it's a treat. To hear you out. Thank you.
1: You're welcome. Very welcome.
0: On another side of the globe, Maria Jose Orzua Valverde, who grew up in Mexico City. She's a Princeton scholar of international relations. The Latin take on war in Ukraine, she says, is a complicated mix. There's condemnation of Russia's invasion, but then a certain sympathy for Russia under threat from the United States. Maria, there's a sense in the United States of, we're back. We're recovered. We're a global leader again with virtue and not fighting even. What's the what's Latin take on, on us in this moment?
2: Latin America sees with concern the invasion of Ukraine simply because of the history of Latin America and interventionism in the region is something...
0: By Uncle Sam.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a very sensitive topic for every Latin American country. So if you see the U.N. votes, most countries have condemned the invasion of Ukraine, but are also at the same time not willing to be further involved. Not even one Latin American country has joined the U.S. sanctions.
0: Yeah, this is puzzling.
2: Yeah. (laughs) And Latin American countries are also not not sending arms to Ukraine. So I, I, I don't think it's puzzling in terms of the history of the region, especially like, for example, Mexico has this multilateral tradition that has basically led the country to never join any unilateral sanctions. So Mexico Hmm. usually joins sanctioned regimes when they are approved in the United Nations, but not like any unilateral sanctions regime. We see that like playing out in this case again. And I think that has to do with the conviction generally shared in Latin America that international law is relevant, that the respect for the principle of non-intervention matters, that a country should not be invaded by, by another country, that there's a juridical equality of states. But at the same time, being kind of always very skeptical of interventionism, even to a stop of, mm-hmm. a violation of international law. I would say that Latin American countries are also like, generally like skeptical of U.S. leadership, the discourse that the U.S. is the leader of a free world and that it should, be, it should play like a major part in solving this conflict.
0: When a Mexican looks at Ukrainians wanting a full democracy, even the right to be obnoxious with Russia, how do they process that? In the Western Hemisphere, they know they have to be respectful and get along with the giant power to the north. That's us. Yeah. Are they, might they root for the Ukrainians, go give it a try, or get real about the, about the world of great powers?
2: Most Latin Americans and most Mexicans definitely would say get real about, that, about big power politics. And I, I think a very interesting example is the current Mexican government who is self-identifies as a leftist government, and President Andrés Manuel López Obrador is pretty vocal about many, many issues, but it's not very vocal about the United States. It has actually been, like, very respectful of the bilateral relationship with the United States.
0: This is a question that I can imagine Mexicans arguing about, the requirements of being anti-imperialist first, but also compliant, in some sense, in a realist way, with imperial power. Yes. <laughs> how, w- how would Mexicans picture this struggle?
2: Those are two issues that are in constant tension. The answer that Latin American countries have found is mostly picking fights and picking issue areas and usually choosing not to antagonize the United States in the topics that are more fundamental for the United States. Mexico has chosen to re- re- recently to fully cooperate with the United States in containing migration. But then Mexico has always um, tried to contain the United States in international forum and to sponsor international negotiations that may serve to impose some limits to the United States, for example, in the topic of arms trafficking. I mean, it's always like kind of like a soft response, but I, I, I think that's probably the best we can do. And I don't think there's any, well, anyone in Latin America who would argue that a completely anti-imperialist stance is possible.
0: A completely anti-imperialist.
2: Yeah, cooperation is necessary with empire and compliance with some of the concerns and demands of empire are necessary.
0: Maria Jose Urzura Valverde, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, Pico Iyer, with a global sensibility in his bones, his education and his travels. This is Open Source. Back across the ocean with Tariq Ali in London. He was born in British India, in Lahore, which is now in Pakistan. He's a lifelong critic of Western Empire and an editor of the New Left Review. With Tariq Ali, I wanted to hear what stands in the way of a world consensus around a savage invasion.
3: The notion that the West is back is simply not accepted by large numbers of people, Chris. And mm. the reason for that is very straightforward. Iraq was a huge disaster. Syria was a disaster. So when you say the West is back, for many people, they'll say the West never left. The West was in Africa, in Somalia. The West has been in the Yemen. The West has just left Afghanistan so the West is back in terms of popularity is not taken too seriously. People feel that it's a very temporary phase and it might disappear even in Europe if this war is prolonged.
0: It's a very sensitive point to go to the UN test and see so many huge countries either abstaining or walking away. Brazil, South Africa, Turkey,
3: Indonesia... India surprised me. These countries are certainly not pro-Putin, or in any way countries who have an alternative economic program to that of the United States. In other words, they are all fairly orthodox capitalist countries. And they are now saying to the United States, and this was the first manifestation of it, Hitherto, we have accepted your power, we have accepted your ideology, we have accepted your political approach to global matters, but no longer. Why no longer? Because these policies have created a huge disruption now in Europe, which affects us all. Sanctions against Russia affect us all because we are trading partners with Russia and have been for many years. So we're not going to back sanctions. And they're acting like the United States does, or mostly, in their own interests. Take India, for instance, which has a long established policy of trade relations with Russia, and which still depends on Russia for armaments to a certain extent and has deals with them. So if they have to make a choice in the sense of, are we going to sanction Russia? It's like asking, are you going to sanction yourself? And the reply is no. And a similar thing applies to Brazil, South Africa, and other countries this also applies to the european countries like for instance italy and germany heavily dependent on trade with russia italy is going to suffer but they are locked into nato and go along with it though privately there is a a considerable amount of grumbling, but publicly they support it. The Italians in particular are very staunch and will do what they are told, but they will expect compensation. In Asia, Africa and South America, this is not the case. And if you add to this now growing war talk and uh, public attacks on China, that frightens people even more saying Russia is a big state and it's an important state and we don't want, you know, to antagonize them. But an attack on China will be unacceptable to us. With the possible exception of the Indians, the other countries in Asia, Africa and South America whose trade with China has expanded massively over the last decades will certainly not back any adventures in China. Tariq Ali, stand
0: way back here. You've been watching the United States, as the world does for a long lifetime, always warily. But I wonder what you see changing in our own country that maybe Americans don't always notice. What happened to us as you see it?
3: Well, basically what happened was this. With the collapse of the European empires after the World War, and the existence of the Soviet Union which promised and pledged to defend colonial peoples and gave a lot of funding and aid to national liberation movements in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. The United States took over the role of the European powers and became this imperial hegemon. They fought all the wars of the former European imperialist countries, with the exception of India. And so these awful wars were fought, which especially when you look at them now, the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Middle Eastern Wars, I mean, a total disaster. That's what changed the United States, but changed it without the American population and the citizens of the United States being fully aware of it. I was just going to
0: say, if I may, even in New England, we're neighbors of Concord and Lexington, the Battle of Bunker Hill against the British Empire in the 18th century. And nobody told us that a country that had fought the British Empire, liberated itself, had inherited the mentality of the British Empire.
3: Exactly.
0: And finally, our friend Pico Iyer. American citizen, born in England, to parents from India. He's a devout traveler, finely tuned to the varieties of life and moods on Earth. He lives in Japan now, but he had just arrived in California this week when we spoke. Pico Iyer, you invented the global point of view. The globe is feeling fractured in this time of Ukraine war. Where is your head these days? Well, my head
4: has been moving back and forth between Japan and the U.S. pretty constantly over the last two years during the pandemic and really seeing the rift between them intensifying and getting greater than ever before. Spell that out, the split. So immediately before the pandemic, I spent seven months crisscrossing the world from Belfast to Singapore, from Hong Kong to Vancouver. And I came away from that feeling that the U.S. was maybe 25 years behind Asia and 15 years behind Europe and Canada, in terms of infrastructure, in terms of service and efficiency, in terms especially of global awareness. And I think some of my friends and neighbors in the US are unaware of that precisely because they don't travel and are unaware of how advanced things are in the rest of the world. And that was at the end of 2019. And the pandemic, for many people across the planet, I think underlined the sense that the US, while in certain ways stronger and richer than almost anywhere, is coming apart and suffered through the pandemic more than anywhere. My wife is Japanese and she grew up just after the occupation with the sense of the United States being Gary Cooper and Gregory Peck, these very commanding figures who spoke for a confidence and strength that nowhere else in the world could Mm -hmm. really Mm -hmm. exemplify. And now, when she comes here, she says, um, where's the sense of freedom that I always associated with the U.S.? Why is it I'm seeing that more in in Britain or Canada or Japan than in this country? And I think the U.S. is out of of step, I suppose, in terms of assessing its place, at least culturally and psychologically, in the world's imagination.
0: Help us locate ourselves, Pico. If there's anything good coming out of this catastrophe in Ukraine— We're told it's that the U.S. is back. We're talking about our own values, including freedom and democracy. And yet, step over the border, and where is that view?
4: That's wonderfully said. And, of course, virtue is not defined by uh, the villainy of one's enemy. The fact that one's great rival is acting horribly doesn't mean that one is acting nobly. And certainly the U.S. (laughs) looks impressive by comparison with Russia at the moment. But that's, I don't think, a good register of how the U.S. stands up against some absolute standard. And, you know, I should stress that I'm a really grateful immigrant to the United States, and I have much greater opportunities here than I would in any other country in the world. I was just listening to Bono receive the Fulbright Award, and he's a canny global observer, somebody who's been touring the world for 40 years. And he was saying wonderfully how growing up in Ireland, they looked to America because even though America didn't live up to its ideals, at least it had ideals. And I related to that because in England, too, when I was growing up, there was none of the sense of a future tense that the U.S. still represents. And I think America's competitive advantage now remains in the fact that it's an idea and that people, young kids, of great intelligence in in Bangalore, Tel Aviv, are not dreaming of going to China or Germany. They're still dreaming of the U.S. But whenever I travel, whether it's to Iran or India, say, I'm always struck that the people there know much more about the world and much more about the U.S. than we know about them. And the same would be true in China.
0: Dig into our role here. We're in a sort of lend-lease position with Ukraine, supplying the weapons, not shooting ourselves. But we keep getting told in American media that we've got our mojo back. Mm. And the role of people who are ready to stand with us or to condemn Putin in Ukraine, it's challenging. Pick apart what you see from abroad, the Biden firmness and reserve at the same time in Ukraine.
4: I would not contest the U.S. policy. It seems that the administration is making a lot of right and very wise moves. But I don't think that speaks for... The strength of America. So being in Japan these last eight weeks, nobody around me has been saying the U.S. is great. They've just been saying Russia is terrible. And they're very glad that the democracies of the West mm. and so many other countries, including their own, are banding together in opposition to that. But I think nobody is likely to single out the U.S. as the hero of the story, nor our government as the leading light. I was just reading a fascinating article in the New York Review of Books by Fintan O'Toole about Angela Merkel, in which he was arguing that part of her strength was to remain modest, uh, invisible, and never interested in making Germany great again. That, in fact, her greatness lay in the fact that she was happy to make Germany ordinary. In some ways, that may be what the world needs now. But in the terms in which the U.S. congratulates itself, I don't think that congratulation is being echoed any of the countries where I go. And I was spending a lot of time in Singapore not so long ago, and they're rightly proud of their achievements. And they will say 40 years ago, we were another relatively disheveled, impoverished undeveloped country, Mm. and now we make the U.S. seem out of date by comparison. I've spent my life going back and forth between London and New York, and I never thought there would come a time when London, so dull and dreary when I was a boy, seems cooler, younger, much more up to the moment than New York. I never thought there would be a time when India, not the most organized of countries, seems to be getting certain things done better than I could imagine here in this country. Mm during the last five years, I've really felt dispirited, whether it's among my friends or in the media. I don't think the level of discussion is very high here. And then I'll go to a place like India, which for all its problems is, I would say, intellectually alive and people are reading books and flashing out ideas and very engaged conceptually the state of the world. When I come to this country, I think that my business, the business of of writing books, seems very much beside the point. And then I'll go to South Asia, where there are 127 literary festivals every year, and tens of thousands of people in business, from the software industry, from medicine, from every field, are racing in to read the latest novel or to discuss um, the latest clash of civilizations idea. I think, well, that's where the electric conversation is happening in in places that we often know too little about.
0: Pico, I never forget, of course, that you grew up in a house in London where the Dalai Lama was a regular visitor. (laughs) I wish you'd throw a Buddhist light on the feelings that we're not recognizing or that are out of control. What would the Dalai Lama see in the emotions of this moment playing out in Ukraine especially?
4: Well, I know... He penned a a very strong statement, even before the Pope did, expressing his horror and and just the the wise and enduring truth that violence never solves anything uh, and that anger only creates anger in response. And he's a very logical person. And he genuinely has grown up with a sense of interconnectedness. And therefore, the understanding that to hit any one place in the world is to hit everybody else and to hit yourself it 's counterintuitive it 's in a globalized interconnected world to attack Ukraine is equivalent to punching yourself in the stomach or taking your right hand and punching your left arm with it It just doesn't stand to reason. I remember during the pandemic, he was taking a much more long-term view than many people would. And the Buddhist notion is, you know, suffering is the nature of the world. And we are defined by how we respond to suffering. It's no surprise that suddenly there's a calamity that's affecting the whole world. But what do we do faced with the proximity of, of sickness? Or
0: death. I'm still getting used to the thought that we are in uncharted territory. It does feel like history begins again in these recent weeks and months, and we don't know the shape of it.
4: We're always in uncharted waters, and I think the pandemic only underlined what is always the case, which is none of us at any time knows what's going to happen tomorrow um, or tonight. And our lives will de- be defined by how well we live with uncertainty, whether it's in the context of political events like Ukraine or social events like the pandemic. Uh, you know, right after Fukuyama's end of history came the horrors of Bosnia, the horrors of Rwanda. Yes. We barely recovered from that before um, the attacks on the embassies in, in Africa, and then 9/11 and then war in Iraq and and Afghanistan. So I'm wary um, of at any moment saying this has been a dramatic change, because I think these dramatic changes have been and will continue to be constant.
0: Pico Ayer, what is your own internal compass through storms like this in uncharted territory? How do you remind yourself, think of the long term, think of the larger picture?
4: I do worry that the more we're attending to small screens, the less we can see the larger picture. I do worry that we forget that this too shall pass, and Mm. that we get so caught up in changing, breaking events that we forget the unbreaking stuff that is probably what's really defining our lives. And I also, just as an individual think, what are my responsibilities, whom can I help right now? Like most of us, I'm grieving for every Ukrainian. I'm cheering them on. If there's a way I can help them, I'm very keen to do so. But I don't want to be so caught up in the drama and, and the visceral excitement of the news that I forget the people immediately around me who probably I can tangibly help in the next hour or in the next day. Mm. Um, there's a danger in this age of distraction that we get caught up in these huge events to which we're really just powerless observers and don't look at everything much closer to home, which we really can beneficially affect. And so even as I grieve for what's happening in Ukraine, I don't want to overlook my aging mother, my daughter, my neighbors who are going through all kinds of sufferings. And I don't want to forget that their predicament, which is much less dramatic and much less world-changing, is something I can positively affect.
0: Pico Iyer, you, you clear our minds in the most wonderfully refreshing way. Thank you, as always, and more so.
4: Oh, it's such a delight and honor to talk to you, Chris, and thank you for all you do.
0: Thanks also to Mark Weitzman, Tariq Ali, and Maria Jose Urzua Valverde. You've just heard another installment of In Search of Monsters, our limited series collaboration with the Quincy Institute. Find out more about the Institute at quincyinst.org, where you can also read Trita Parsi on why non-Western countries tend to see Russia's war very, very differently. Our show this week was produced by Mary McGrath and Adam Coleman with engineering help from the WBUR production team. I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time for Open Source.